Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Friday night, from It Is What It Is to Quiet Quitting, Awesome Absolutely, and Moving Forward, we take a look at the list of tired, redundant, and meaningless words and phrases that should be put out to pasture in 2023. We head to Mogadishu to speak with a Canadian working on the front lines of the humanitarian crisis in Somalia with the UN's World Food Program. Tributes and condolences continue to pour in following the death of Lisa Marie Presley at the age of 54 on Thursday. She was the only child of Elvis Presley, perhaps the most famous singer of the 20th century. And we look into the pressures of being the child of such a superstar. How should Canada approach irregular border crossings by those seeking to claim asylum in this country? Federal Conservative leader Pierre Poiliev joined Quebec's premier in calling on the federal government to shut down a very busy route on the Quebec-New York state border. Would that work? But first, Canada's banking regulator is looking at tightening guidelines around mortgages even further. What could that mean for prospective home buyers? What does it mean for the housing market? We find out. First up, well, you may need more than uh, good luck to qualify for a mortgage in this country. Uh, I mean, you may already, but it may get worse by the end of the year. It's getting tougher overall, thanks to rising interest rates and the so-called stress tests given to all mortgage applicants. And again, it may get even tougher. Yesterday, the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions, that's this country's top bank regulator, released new proposed mortgage guidelines for public comment. So that means they want to hear from us. Um, So what are they proposing? Well, it includes a lot of things, three buckets, really. Further restricting how much a bank can lend to borrowers whose mortgage or total debt exceeds a certain percentage of their gross income. That means they're going to look at how much your gross income is, how much money you owe on everything, and then limit what you can borrow for a mortgage based on that. That's my understanding. It could also implement a new minimum interest rate for the so-called stress test. You know, they brought that in a while back. Uh, I gather it's been pretty successful, especially now it was put to the test as interest rates have risen. And this all comes, as Royal LePage says, the median Canadian home price in the fourth quarter of 2022 declined year over year for the first time since the end of 2008 during the financial crisis. The real estate company says the median aggregate price of a home was $757,100 in the final quarter of last year, down 2.8% from the end of 2021. Home prices fell last year as mortgage rates pushed higher, driven by the Bank of Canada's interest rate hikes to fight inflation. Royal LePage says the national aggregate home price in the fourth quarter of last year was up 13.8% from the same quarter in 2020 and up 17.2% from the fourth quarter of 2019. Don Kelly, the Canadian Press, Toronto. It means even if prices are falling a bit, uh, you still have to make an awful lot of money to qualify for a mortgage these days. So what kind of impact would these proposed changes have to uh, mortgage guidelines? What kind of impact could they have on prospective buyers and on the housing market overall in this country? Joining me now with more on that is Dan Eisner. He's CEO of True North Mortgages, and he speaks to us tonight from Calgary. Uh, Dan, thanks for your time. Thanks, Ben. Glad to be here. You know, these are always really important decisions that the regulator makes. What are they proposing? It seems like a long list of things that could have a real impact on the way that uh, Canadians get mortgages. The items they're proposing are pretty extensive. A few years ago, they came out with a minimum qualifying rate, which really uh, did change the industry. It did push a lot of home buyers, would-be home buyers, out of the marketplace, made them into renters. 
Now they're looking at it again, and they're looking at uh, three possible changes. They do overlap somewhat, but these will be significant, and it could really change what home buyers qualify and which ones don't. So what is the impetus for this? Because I know looking out there, obviously, with infl- with the interest rates rising, the stress test has become more onerous for a lot of prospective home buyers. Uh, but it seems to be working, at least. I think the the fact the um, stat that I saw was that more than 98% of Canadian mortgages are not in arrears, which would seem like a good thing. But what is the problem that the OFSI is looking at here? Let me just clarify. It's like 99.8% wow. of mortgages are not in so, arrears. So nearly 100%, sure. right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, two years ago, three years ago, when they came out with that stress test and rates were super low, you can kind of say, okay, look, rates are super low statistically, so we're bound to see higher rates. So let's stress test at five and a quarter or the contract rate plus two, minimum of of those two. Okay, maximum of those two. Great. Now we're several years later, interest rates are a bit higher. It is a bit perplexing to see what kind of problem they're trying to solve. I mean, their overall goal is to create stability and lessen the risk in in the uh, mortgage market and in the banking sector altogether. But right at this point in time, it is a bit bit perplexing. We've seen interest rates rise. We're seeing that we have to qualify clients at a 7% rate, far higher than it was just a couple of years ago. So I think a lot of industry members are a little bit perplexed as to what the problem they're trying to solve is here. Of course, they're going out for consultation, so I guess you'll have a chance to make that clear to the regulator. So what are these? I mean, I think we can assume that the stress test will be uh, strengthened. That's one of them. But there's some. And and how is that going to work under these proposed changes? So there's kind of three buckets of things they're looking at. They're just saying, look. If you make $100,000 a year, you no matter what your interest payment is or what it looks like, you can't get a mortgage for more than $400,000. I mean, it's a bit of, they said three and a half to four and a half, whatever. So, so whether interest rates are really low or whether interest rates are really high, you're stuck with that $400,000. That's kind of one bucket. Right. The other bucket is, look, only a certain amount of your interest, uh, your p- monthly payments compared to your income can go to interest payments. So if you have a really low interest, then you can effectively afford a larger mortgage. And if you have a very high interest rate, so you can afford effectively a much lower mortgage. Okay, fine. Now, that is what that is directly that minimum qualifying rate that kind of addresses that kind of directly because they have that qualifying rate. What they're looking at here is not really changing it that way. They're just making it apply to more products. So a lot of the big banks were able to say, look, yeah, we're totally using that qualifying right, but we're going to make exceptions if the client has a really high net worth. Maybe right. maybe the mortgage value is very small compared to the price of the house. We're going to make exceptions. And also be saying no more of those exceptions. You must hit these rules regardless. And the stress test part of it, too. I mean, I gather they're looking at uh, tightening that up even more as well. Yeah, but but I don't think they're actually going to increase it. Right. I think they're just going to make it apply to more situations. And right. that's the third bucket. It, it should apply to maybe credit cards and line of credits and other type of consumer products as well. And that's what they're they're asking, whether they can do that and can it be effective. It's interesting because I was reading recently, of course, that the UK had gotten rid of stress tests last year uh, and you sort of you know thought that it was a bit onerous on uh, lenders and buyers and, and prospective borrowers out there. How would you rate its success in Canada so far? Has it achieved what it was supposed to achieve and is it you know is it worth holding on to well if you if you said i want it to reduce home prices 
it was obviously not effective. If you said, I want to push, you know, those marginal home price, uh, home buyers out of the housing market and make them into renters. Yeah, it was totally effective. And what we saw over the last few years is the percentage of homes owned by people who live in them fall, whereas the percentage of homes that are owned by investors increase. So what you effectively did is you moved would-be home buyers and made them into tenants. And those properties were bought just as much as they were ever bought, but owned by landlords instead. I can't imagine that was the outcome anyone was looking for. I, I don't know how it's possible. Like there's only two possible homeowners, right? It's either a person who lives in and owns it or there's a landlord. There's only those two possible. So if you're going to make it harder for owner-occupied people to buy the house, where did they, who did they think was going to buy the house? Like it doesn't, there's no, like, no, nobody owns it. Like that, that doesn't exist as an option. So, but. Yeah. You know, at the same time, you don't want, you know, I think people were looking around at, at, uh, at personal debt and thinking, okay, we don't want the housing market to, uh, to crash. We don't want people not to be able to afford their mortgages. So let's do this. And I think the overall assumption out there is that it's been relatively successful. Um, but you know, as was pointed out by someone else who wrote about this today, there is a difference between doing something that works and then doing too much of it, right? And are we heading towards too much of it? Yeah, is the is the medicine to the point of being the poison? Um, right. And it does. Like at this point, if you were to say we're going to increase the stress test even more, okay, the, and and we see home homeowners being you know tested right now, and maybe they'll say, look, I, I have equity in my home. It's too the payments are too much. I'm going to sell. But if there's no buyers out there for that house, okay, then we really have a problem. That is the reason why we're not seeing massive arrears right now is because those home buyers that are stressed have equity in their house and they have the option to sell and not take a loss. And that's why we're not seeing the arrears. But if we push this too far and home prices fall too fast and too far, there won't be that exit for these people. And then we really will see some real arrears in that. Anymore. And of course, I, I gather that Canadians uh, in as a whole tend to be quite uh, diligent about paying their mortgages. That's something that we'll sacrifice other stuff to make sure our payments are up to date. I, I, that, you know, there's this base assumption that Aussie has is that uh, Canadians will buy as much as possible. And, that, and that's just not my experience. A lot of Canadians will come into our stores and, and speak to us and they'll have their budget. This is what I feel I can afford, regardless of what you think. This is what I feel I can afford. And, and also, like Canadians, you don't buy a house unless you feel secure in your own job. Okay. If you are feeling nervous about your job, nobody buys a house then. Okay. And and there's this assumption that that somehow Canadians don't think that way. I just naturally nobody wants the stress of arrears. And if you do a good job, you'll you'll make prudent decisions. Dan Eisner, CEO of True North Mortgages, is with us this half hour from Calgary. We're talking about uh, the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions, the country's top bank regulator, uh, releasing some new proposed mortgage guidelines for public comment uh, on Thursday. Uh, they would, again, make it tougher for those uh, who don't. They make it tougher for some Canadians who who might not pass these tests to be able to borrow money for a mortgage to buy a home. Uh, Dan, when we look at uh, what kind of impact this could have, I mean, in the short term, this is still out for public comment. These aren't going to happen immediately. But what kind of impact do you think it could have if several of these um, proposals are turned into rules? Yeah, there's three big buckets of, of changes they're proposing. And in our experience, in my experience, it is... Um, one or two of these are definitely going to pass. Like they don't, they don't propose these things without the strong expectation that these things will pass. So I think this will come to pass. And when you open this up, you say, who are the home buyers this is going to affect? I tell you, this is going to be 
home buyers who are first time home buyers, home buyers that uh, maybe a second time home buyers, they're moving up. This is this is going to affect landlords much less. Landlords are typically higher net worth. They can typically put them a lot more down, and they are the ones who are going to eat up that gap that where the home the home buyers are not buying. It's going to be landlords who buy instead. Have we seen, I mean, now that housing prices have fallen, uh, interest rates are up, what has been the impact so far? Are we seeing sort of uh, a shakiness in the housing market uh, and what might this do to it? We've seen a lot of uh, a slowdown in purchases over the last several months. Not surprising. I think a lot of home sellers are hesitating to put their house on the market because it fell by 10, 15, 20%. They don't like that and they're waiting. And there's a lot of home buyers who are saying, well, I think the market's going to fall a little further. Now, I don't know who's going to win that battle, but uh, my initial prediction was we would see that market, that the meeting of the market the, sometime this September, uh, this summer. That being said, I got to tell you, since January 1st, we've seen a record number of new applications coming in. So people buying, people, yeah. people looking well, to buy, yeah. People are making, they're interested in mortgages again. Like they weren't in November, December. It's we're only on January 13th. And we've seen record amount of uh, new leads coming in with people looking for mortgages. Interesting. And we're not seeing, I mean, we haven't seen a lot of defaults, right? I mean, there was a lot of talk about that when interest rates really started to jump. Uh, people with variable rate mortgages and so on, we thought, okay, this is going to be a problem for a lot of people. I gather it probably is, but we're not seeing that just yet. Or we're not seeing a lot of it, I don't think. Yeah, you know, we are actually, we have an exclusive lender called Think Financial, which said we have 17,000 active uh, mortgage files uh, there. And the amount of arrears we've seen is like one. It hasn't happened. And I, when I speak to other lenders, they're not seeing a big influx of, uh, of arrears because we did stress test them at five and a quarter years ago. And so now rates are right around there. Those, those variable rates around there. So they have been stress tested. So it's okay. Uh, and the other part is if you're really stressed, you can like, unless you literally bought your house last February or March, you still have a lot of equity in it. And so people are able to sell if they're really stressed. So, I mean, these aren't imminent rules where there's going to be a public consultation. When might we see them? Do you think? Uh, well, they didn't announce when they're going to roll them out, but I would imagine it would be third or fourth quarter of uh, 2023. So fairly imminent. So I guess the best case scenario here is that uh, we further shield you know, the len- lenders and borrowers from making bad decisions uh, and therefore sort of create even more stability in the housing market. And uh, the worst case scenario is that we drive a whole bunch of people who should be able to afford to buy homes out of the market, keep them in the rental market where rentals are, are skyrocketing. And um, that's you... why rental markets are skyrocketing. Well, of course, that's why. Yes. Uh, there is another option. There is right. the UK option and say, look, banks, you know what you're doing. We Banks have been very good in Canada over decades and decades and decades. They've been very good in Canada. And we could just say, look, you're smart. You've been doing this for 100 plus years. Maybe we let you make your credit decisions. We'll see. I, I, I suppose you'll be you'll be submitting some comments. No doubt, Dan. I've, I'm sorry to work on them. Yeah. Dan Eisner, CEO of True North Mortgages. Thank you so much. Have a nice weekend. Thank you. Same to you. I use a lot of words. I do a lot of talking. So there are words, of course, you catch yourself saying, you're thinking, I really need to put that one out to pasture. I can't use that word anymore. Well, Lake Superior State in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, which, yes, is right across a bridge from Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, Every year, they put out a list of words that they say should be quote-unquote banished. Now, this is not some crusade. This is a tongue-in-cheek thing. 
they get nominations, they go through them, and every year they post their list of words that should be done away with for 2023. Uh, it's quite a list. I mean, you can if you go on their website, you can look all the way back to 1976 when it started. So for 2023, um, GOAT, greatest of all time, that one they think should be should get gone. Inflection point is another one. Um, the word absolutely, amazing. Um, moving forward, which, yes. <laughs> First of all, it means nothing. Second of all, it definitely should be one that you try to expunge. They describe them as words that are, or phrases that are misused, overused, or useless. Um, now, the words that, again, the words that they put on this list, they aren't plucked out of thin air. People send in nominations and their arts and letters faculty sizes them up, presents their picks. It is what it is. And that, too, is one of the catchphrases that merits a one-way ticket to oblivion, they say. Here is a memorable scene from a not particularly memorable movie, Matt Damon's We Bought a Zoo. It is what it is. It is what it is. Sometimes you don't know what it is until you see what it is. You know? Once you see what it is, then you can figure out, is it what it is? You understand? No, but we can move on. (laughs) Yeah, let's move on. It is what it is. I mean, I, I don't, I don't loathe it, but some people really don't like it. But yeah, it could be one of those ones we just stop using since it really doesn't mean much, does it? Um, again, there's nothing remotely serious about this list. This is all tongue in cheek. But joining me now is Peter Zatmary. He's executive director of marketing and communications at Lake Superior State University in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. Uh, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you for the interest. So this is an annual event. Just so we, we we make things clear, this is not about banishing words for any other reason than they are overused. Is that right? Well, overuse, misuse, and uselessness are the three tentpoles that we pay attention to in our tongue-in-cheek annual banishment. A trifecta, so to speak. This is how does it work? We get nominations from around the state of Michigan, as you can imagine, around the U.S. We also get nominations from just about every province in Canada, plus many countries around the world. And we look forward to not merely the words and terms that people take playful umbrage with, but as importantly, the reasoning behind their mock serious irritation. And this year, we got more than 1,500 nominations. And then the faculty from the School of Arts and Letters narrows them down to the best of the worst, the 10 that we recommend for playful banishment for the next year. People are very passionate about this stuff, I know, because I hear, obviously, I use words, so sometimes I use words that people are are sick and tired of, and I get told, uh, what were some of the ones that uh, that made the list this year? Uh, There's some familiar ones. I've read the list. There's some familiar ones in there. Well, uh, we banished 10 words and terms this year. Would you like us to begin with number 10 or number one? Well, we might as well start at the top if there is such a thing. Why don't, we start, why don't we start at the, the top? The number one word or term that people wanted vanished and that our judges agreed was the acronym GOAT, greatest of all time. 
Oh, you hear that one a lot, don't you? Yep. And our nominators were across the board for overuse, misuse, and uselessness. And as one of our nominators said, it's applied to everyone and everything from athletes to chicken wings. <laughs> right. And, so and when you think about it, how can anyone or anything be the GOAT anyway? Because time marches on and records fall and it's oftentimes subjective, the, the rationale. Yeah. Other nominators pointed to the uh, overuse that goat gets sprinkled like table salt on anyone who's really good at whatever. And one of our wordsmiths said that, isn't it interesting and ironic that it used to be that goat as a noun once suggested something unsuccessful. Yes. And now it's an indiscriminate flaunt. So I guess we'll we'll give goats back to the goats then. That's that's a good one. Yes, there's we some will. other there's some other interesting ones out there. There's one that we've used a lot this year called well, quiet quitting is one of the ones that we used a lot this year because it sort of entered the lexicon, but already uh people want to see it gone. Yeah. And our nominators pointed out that it's both very trendy, but as well inaccurate, because when you think of those two words and push them together. You might think it's an employee who inconspicuously resigns. Instead, it's trying to convey an employee who completes the minimum requirements for a job. So our nominators said it's just a fancy way of saying normal job performance or companies complaining about workers refusing to be exploited to go above and beyond. And it's not new. It's burnout on we boredom. Uh, moving forward was another one that that uh, that was singled out. I could I can imagine why. What would your reasons be? Well, I mean, it, it's just it, it means nothing, right? I mean, you don't have to say it, right? You know, it, it just it it seems like sort of wasted words. Moving forward, well, yeah. As one of our nominators pointed out, where else would we go? Because well, yeah. we can't go back in time, and. One of our nominators said, you know, it also could refer to get my way and such as how can we move forward? And the nominator said, well, guess what? Sometimes you can't. And one of my favorite reasons was that politicians and bosses often use that phrasing as, quote, semantic legitimacy, unquote, of their self-interest evasion or disingenuousness so it's a a weasel word in other words yeah and and what was interesting for us too was that what we called its next of kin going forward also received votes and we had banished going forward in 2001 wow 21 years later we're or 22 years later we're back at it still trying to get that one extricated from uh from from our lexicon, uh, I was I was surprised to see irregardless, of course, because that's one that's um, I mean it's not a word, right? <laughs> it's often used, and it it found a place of honor on this year's list. Yeah, well, one of the things that we've noticed about the words and terms that get banished year after year, decade after decade, they generally fall into two camps: one commenting on the zeitgeist, so remarking on current events. Or as a case, as the case in Irregardless, 
of an evergreen word or term. And in this case, as one of our nominators said, it makes my hair hurt. And that should be the case because it's not a word irregardless or at the most, according to some dictionaries, it's a non-standard word. And certainly, obviously, regardless suffices. And another nominator said, well, if you look at it, the prefix IR plus the word regardless equals redundancy. And then another wit said, take the word regardless, dress it up for emphasis to showcase your command of non-existent words. Peter Zatmary is with us this half hour. He's executive director of marketing and communications at Lake Superior State University in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. Every year they issue their list of words. It's a tongue-in-cheek list. Don't don't get upset. These aren't. Uh, there's no fines here. But these are words that a lot of people feel should be banished for a little while, at least put to rest. You know, as we were talking about words like moving forward, um, goat, greatest of all time irregardless, which is not a word or at least not a normal word, but we've talked about those. A few other ones this year that were interesting. Um, it is what it is. That one you hear a lot. And I, I gather it found its place of honor this year. Uh, at Not only this year, we first banned it in 2008. Wow. For overuse, misuse, and uselessness. And in 2008, our nominators pointed out that it's pointless. It's a cop-out and only Yogi Berra should be allowed to utter such a circumlocution. And this year, our nominators had these reasons. Well, duh. Of course it is what it is. What else would it be? It would be weird if it wasn't what it wasn't. And then others called it a verbal crutch, and some called it an excuse not to deal with reality or accept responsibility, and that it's sometimes dismissive and even borderline rude. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's hard to know what it means when someone says it, right? I mean, oftentimes we use words uh, that aren't meant to mean anything. They're sort of like, I don't know what, you know, it's sort of a, just a way of re- reacting to something without actually saying anything. I was looking down through all the years because it's a fascinating list. If you want to go onto the website, you could actually see all the words going back to 1976. And they do change over time, although they say they stay strikingly similar over time as well. So you get things like Reaganomics, right? Moral majority. These are words that we used years and years ago that have disappeared since anything with Obama as a prefix um, is, is gone as well. Or, you know, these are things that were really of the moment. But sometimes you look back and you see words and you think, wait a second, you know, 2011, you had the American people. Now, if I had a dollar for every time the, I heard the word American, the American people spoken by politicians, I'd be a rich man today. Yeah, the and that falls into the camp of the ones that are responding in the current events. A lot of times they will respond to political issues. And whether the words and terms are in reaction to trends or whether they're pointing out the evergreens, our ultimate interest is to have some serious fun and help people pay more attention to how they and others communicate and miscommunicate. And I I wouldn't presume to 
speak for you, Ben, or your listeners, but I will raise my hand and say, I am guilty of a whole bunch of these words and terms that are banished. I use them all the time. Sometimes my brain points that out to me and I correct myself. And sometimes I forget. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I looked at these words with a certain amount of shame as well, because there's a lot of them that that we use. I mean, there are ones that have definitely been, I think we've purposely tried to get rid of them. Last year, you had circle back, which I think is a terrible, terrible, terrible term. And it was uh, it was sort of put out to pasture last year at the end of the day as well. One that we use for this show, actually, because to be honest, it's it's a play on words because our show is on at the end of the day. But, right. Uh, but there it is. There it is sitting right there in 2022 at the end of the day. I thought, wow, we use that one. And people who are interested in what words and terms have been banished over the years and the decades, they can go to our website and where we've accumulated them, alphabetical order and also year by year plus our press releases, some of the art that we've created over the years and decades, and as importantly, nominate words and terms to banish for 2024 via our online form. And all of that can be found at lssu.edu slash banished words. It's it's a fascinating tradition that started at this point many, many years ago. I mean, it's, we're heading towards uh, half a century for this one now. That's quite the feat for Lake Superior State University. Yeah, 1976 was the first one. And to a point that you were mentioning just a few seconds ago, one of the words and terms that was banished in 1976 was at this point in time. Can you imagine? And the reason that that was chosen was in that year and uh, shortly before that, Richard Nixon would use that all the time. And that's a, a really apt example of responding to the uh, parlance of the day. And a pretty concrete example of how terms that were banished back in 1976, 1976 exist till this day. People still use, I was looking at 1978, you had Hopefully and Unique. 79 had the bottom line. Uh, these are, 1982 had World Class. Um, 1984 had Basically. I mean, these are all still terms that we use, unfortunately, absolutely. I guess. Yep. And like I just was about to say and corrected myself, absolutely, I was about to say. <laughs> Because that's, <laughs> that's one of our banished words for this year. <laughs> it is. It is. Well, it's been uh, it's a really great initiative. And uh, it's always fun to see people have fun with words, tongue in cheek, but also a little bit of a reminder in there that language is evolving and try not to be lazy with it. It's a beautiful thing. Absolutely. At <laughs> the end of the day, it is what it is. We all miscommunicate. There we go. Peter Zatmary, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Happy New Year. Now, speaking of communication, and this is a and this is one of the things that I find so marvelous about today, now. You know, there was a time where if you did a phone interview with someone, it, even if they weren't that far away, it sounded like you were on different planets. Now you can speak to someone in a place like Mogadishu online, and it is like they're next door. It is that part of it to me is remarkable. 
it's difficult to overstate how difficult the situation is right now in Somalia. Uh, the country is in the Horn of Africa on the Indian Ocean coast. It's suffering through its worst drought in 40 years, combined with years of political instability. There is a group called Al-Shabaab there that has been fighting, Al-Qaeda link group that's been fighting the government for a long time now. The UN estimates that more than 1.7 million Somalis in a country of just over 16 million people have been uprooted from their homes in the, in the past year alone due to the food crisis and fighting involving that group Al-Shabaab, the Islamist militant group. Half the population of 16 million is coping with severe food insecurity, which essentially means on the border of famine. And that could climb quickly if more aid is not delivered early in 2023. They're hoping it will rain when the next rainy season comes around this spring. It did not rain for the, I think, the third or fourth time in a row just now. The rainy season has just ended. 1.5 million people in the country under the age of five, almost half of those under the age of five, are severely malnourished. And the government, of course, lacks the money and the capacity to tackle such a devastating combination of challenges. And that means international aid organizations, of course, on the ground there are key. And that's where my next guest comes in. She's a Canadian living and working in Mogadishu uh, with the World Food Program. You can imagine uh, the challenges that that, that work involves um, and just what your average workday must be like when you're trying to sort of combat so many of these challenges, or at least help combat so many of these challenges. To find out more about it, Laura Turner joins me now from Mogadishu. She is the World Food Program's Deputy Country Director for Somalia. Thank you for your time. Thanks so much for having me. So for, for our listeners who've never been, uh, what is it like in Mogadishu right now? What's, what, is, what is the atmosphere and, and even what's the temperature like? Well, uh, first of all, we're on the equator. So the temperature ranges between 29 and 32 degrees every day. But that's not what you're alluding to. The spirits are high in Mogadishu. In fact, today there was a parade put on by the government because they are finally turning the tide against uh, non-state actors like uh, Al-Shabaab. And the population is thrilled that they can see that uh, there's a a corner to be turned um, in the very near future. And it directly relates to the, the food crisis. That, that the World Food Program is addressing right now because it's actually three-pronged. It's driven by drought, but also very much driven by conflict as well as lack of, of uh, social assistance that the government can provide because the government systems are quite weak at the moment. And so if we can take one of those three pillars away from, from what's driving the humanitarian needs uh, and if the conflict is uh, abated, then it's, uh, it's a good thing for everybody. Yeah, because last I spoke about Somalia on the program, things were looking pretty dire. Those three prongs, all three of them were in bad shape. Certainly the drought yeah. had continued. What, what is the situation with the drought there now and how? what kind of impact did it have in 2022? And what are we looking at in 2023? Unfortunately, the drought is the, the, the one factor that we can't control. And it's also the one that doesn't look very promising at the moment. Um, we have just completed what we term the rainy season. Uh, So rains come in cycles twice a year uh, in Somalia, and they were supposed to happen between October and December traditionally by climate trends. And and we really didn't see anything. So that's the fifth rainy season that has failed. And now we're in a dry period, a traditional dry period. And if everything turns and, and gets better, then the rain should start again in April. So if we miss yet another rains, 
That means that we'll probably see more displacement, definitely more conflict because it's affecting natural resources. And my work will continue to be quite intense. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, five in a row, one gets one must start to think, wow, I wonder if it's ever going to come back the way it once was. Well, in fact, that's exactly where we're spending all of our time. So I have a dual role. It's a life-saving and life-changing, as we like to say. And right. the life-saving has taken all of our efforts um, recently. We have been on the brink of formal famine for months and months, and it's still just around the corner. We've managed to avoid it. We're thrilled, but things aren't improving. In fact, they're getting worse. The longer term prospects of building up household resilience, government institutions, um, sustainable water harvesting, ways that we can help Somalia, because I think their new normal is not what it was five or 10 years ago. And so we need to change the way that we support them. And, and we're doing that with big institutions like the World Bank and, and others who have the, the capital to, to invest in those kinds of institutions. Because this is all intertwined, right? The conflict, the famine, the drought, I mean, obviously the drought and the famine, but the conflict as well. I mean, this is all, we long talked about countries being destabilized by the lack of resources. And here we're seeing it unfold in front of us. Yeah, we've been um, very happy that the, the world has has taken notice of Somalia. And we know that, uh, especially in Europe, um, they're taken over by events uh, in Ukraine, as, as you're probably aware. <laughs> Even with all of the unprecedented support that we've received, um, still, we, we know that uh, famine is a very real possibility this year. And that longer term sustainable hunger solutions like food systems and government social safety nets uh, will be the solution for populations and national institutions that uh, need to be empowered to resist the recurrent climate shocks and, and build up those mitigation measures that Somalia is on the front line of climate change. And what we're seeing there is exacerbated by drought and, and conflict, but it's definitely playing out before our eyes. How does it look on the ground? I mean, you're in Mogadishu. I think most listeners will probably have never been, maybe have read about it, seen pictures of, yeah. of Somalia, but probably have never been to a place like Mogadishu. What does that look like on the ground? Mogadishu is magical, actually. It's a old port um, dating back to the spice trade years, and it has an unprecedented coastline, um, maybe not to the extent that Canada does, but certainly in, in the continent of Africa. The population despite generations of, of being downtrodden, have a real zeal for life. They are thrilled to have opportunities. And whenever we approach them with ideas around community strengthening and supporting them in their own efforts to make sure that they can sustain themselves, they've always embraced those possibilities. So it's, it's actually quite heartening to work with the Somalis. Yeah. How about the security situation? Are you able to get around? Uh, the security situation ebbs and flows. At the moment, it's a little bit more dicey than you would normally expect. Um, insecurity remains a challenge. It's no coincidence that some of the highest rates of hunger in this near famine-like situation are in the hardest to reach areas. And those are the areas where the conflict is playing out between the national forces and, and Al-Shabaab. Uh, WFP, the World Food Program, and some of our UN and, and non-governmental partners, we're, we're pushing into those areas because those are the 
populations that we're most concerned about. They're cut off from assistance and they're cut off from government um, social services like health facilities and education um, facilities. It's not easy to get there. And um, we have to take a lot of precautions, um, including armed escorts. Right. And I imagine for them, too, those are the same people who displace, right? Those are the ones, if they're, if they're caught without uh, behind lines, without access to much, that's when you pack up and go, I would imagine. That's precisely the case. Um, many of those populations that are in the conflict areas are, are in conflict areas precisely because they're agriculturally rich lands. And that's where anyone who is looking for some stability, that, that's where the natural resources are. And so they're caught in between um, the front lines. And uh, when they have the opportunity to leave, they're, they're the first to leave. Unfortunately, they've lost almost all of their assets. So we hope that the rains return and we hope that the conflict debates. But um, what they will be returning to is probably a fraction of what they are fleeing at the moment, unfortunately. Laura Turner is the World Food Program's Deputy Director for Somalia. She's speaking to us tonight from Mogadishu. Uh, Laura, when, you know, you mentioned it earlier, and we, we talked about it last, you know, there were, because of the war in Ukraine, uh, we've seen there's certainly a very dire humanitarian situation unfolding in Afghanistan. Yemen continues. Um, Syria, there are many out there. It is always difficult these days, I know, to capture attention when you have a crisis on your hand. How has the world community been responding to what's been going on in Somalia, both in 2022? And what does it look like when you look ahead to 2023? Well, some people have called this the invisible famine. It doesn't get um, as much coverage as many of the other disasters that you've just listed. Um, and that's understandable. There are domestic concerns across the globe uh, and other crises that also require the world's attention. And this is a slow burn crisis. We're in year three of a drought. Uh, and so obviously, um, you can't look at it every day the way that I do um, being here in Mogadishu. What we can say is truly it's an unprecedented crisis and, and the world's generosity and support has been extraordinary, which allows me to be here to help almost 8 million people every month. That's 50% of the population of Somalia that's been affected, either displaced, goes hungry, or is suffering from, from malnutrition. And we're particularly concerned about the kids under five who don't intake enough uh, vitamins, minerals, and, and just kilocalories um, suffer cognitive uh, deficit for the rest of their lives. And so, um, yeah, we're working as hard as we can, but you're right. There's a lot of other things that are happening globally, and we're just grateful for the support we've received so far. Yeah, there's a lot. Is it 5 million children in need of humanitarian assistance in 2022? It's a huge portion of the population right under the age of 20. Okay. Correct. When you look at, at sort of where we're lacking, uh, what, what more you would need, obviously, you know, the, a, a bit more stability, a bit more ability of the, of the government uh, to function on its own territory would be a big help. But what else do you need this year? Because, I, I mean, I think back to when I was young in Ethiopia and we said, you know, never again. We're never going to let that happen again. And here we are watching it to some extent yeah. unfold again. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, there have been some calls for wealthy countries to compensate uh, countries such as Somalia that are, are really feeling the impacts of climate change. Well, I'm not sure that that's the approach that that should be taken. But what I do think we could all do is to, to, to assist countries like Somalia and definitely learn from some of their experiences around how we can complement life-saving work with longer-term investments to change lives. And uh, the more that we can learn from other countries, I think the more the, the Somali population would be assisted in the longer term. 
Yeah, and in your case, you must hold out hope that this will improve. You couldn't possibly do the work if you didn't, right? We definitely keep our fingers crossed that the goodwill um, holds out, obviously. We are really on the brink of famine. You may remember 10 years ago, 2011, there was an exceptional famine where almost a quarter of a million people died uh, over the space of a summer. We're looking at mortality rates that have exceeded that. But because it's over a period of two and a half or three years, um, it doesn't have the same same impact on, on the world's population. But, but yet, actually, the toll that's taking place is, is much worse. As you mentioned, it's been a slow burn crisis over several, several missed rainy seasons, right? And, and the next one in April, I suppose we can only keep our fingers crossed that it will, in fact, rain this time. We hope that it will rain without a doubt. I would love to invest more time in water harvesting. That's the resource that's lacking in Somalia right now. And we know that this is not the last drought that they will be facing. So my job right now is to focus on how we can help those families and those communities so that when they're facing the same thing in a few years, they'll be more resilient and stronger for it. Well, Laura Turner, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Good luck with uh, the, the monumental task that you face each and every day. I appreciate it. Thank you for your time. I can't say that I was surprised by just how much everyone that I know on social media, Facebook particularly, where it's mostly your friends, right? Friends, family, and so on. How many people were really taken aback by the death of Lisa Marie Presley? And then you think back to the fact that most of the people I know are about her age. A lot of people I know are about her age. Those who are a bit older, my parents, friends, and so on, obviously watched her grow up. Um, were big Elvis fans, remember Elvis at his height, also remember him, uh, his death, and can picture that nine-year-old Lisa Marie Presley when that happened. And also remember just how much attention was paid, how much of a spotlight uh, Elvis, Priscilla, and Lisa Marie were under when she was born. Um, now, I, I'd known that about John Lennon more because he died when I was a little bit older, uh, closer to 10 than six or seven. So it seemed to to resonate more. But I certainly remember... Lisa Marie Presley, and I remember Elvis's death. I mean, you couldn't not. Maybe the first celebrity death that I do remember. Um, and of course, we've been talking about this. The tributes continue to pour in for, for Lisa Marie, who passed away at the age of 54 yesterday after suffering an apparent, cardia- an apparent cardiac arrest. Uh, People Magazine senior music editor Melody Chu put it nicely. She said, Lisa Marie was an icon in her own right. I mean, she was Elvis and Priscilla's sole child. And she was that link that fans who who loved Elvis were desperate to hold on to. You know, just days before her death, Lisa Marie was in Memphis at Graceland, the mansion where Elvis lived and died. Uh, and on January 8th, she celebrated her father's birthday. Um, now, again, he passed at the age of 42, also of a heart attack. And we learned today that Presley herself will be buried at Graceland next to her son, Benjamin, who died in 2020. Fans were there today to pay their respect uh, to Lisa Marie at Graceland, writing messages on the stone wall, leaving flowers, sharing memories of um, the king and Priscilla's only child, uh, who was really one of the last remaining touchstones to Elvis, whose influence and significance, as we well know, even the theme of this show, still resonates more than 45 years after his death. Um, Lisa Marie when she was releasing records, and they did quite well, actually. This one was, she did back in 2012. She did the whole uh, talk show circuit back then. And she was obviously often asked about her relationship with her dad uh, as a young 
before he passed. And here's what he, she had to say on CBS's The Talk back in 2012. Um, upstairs, the upper part of Graceland is basically his room and my room. So we spent a lot of time together up there because there wasn't anything else going on. Um, and that's when I got to really, you know, be with him. He'd set up a little chair in my room and a TV and be in my room a lot. <laughs> was he like a really strict dad or did you hang out and just have fun together? Um, he was not strict at all. <laughs> yeah. 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 Pushover. Like, yeah, did you know, you know you could get away with murder with I him? I did. I did. I knew because, I, you know, when he would sleep all day and... So I pretty much, me and my friends, had the run of Graceland. That's what happened. He slept all day and up at night. So I knew that, and I knew that no one was going to tell me what to do because they would get fired. (laughs) Lisa Marie Presley talking about her relationship with her father uh, on the talk back in 2012. He, of course, passed when she was just nine. Uh, But they had divorced. um, Elvis and Priscilla had divorced when she was four. But imagine being born into that famous name, born a celebrity born in the spotlight and a reminder of others who've been born into that same spotlight and what a struggle it can be, you know, both a blessing and a curse. You're sort of given this famous name, you're sort of given fame at birth at the same time you're given the pressure of it all. So that's what we wanted to talk about tonight. And joining me now with more on that from Beverly Hills is Carol Lieberman. She's a clinical and forensic psychiatrist, a three-time Emmy honored television personality, radio talk show host, and best-selling author. That's quite quite the CV, Carol. Thank you so much for being here on this Friday. You're night. very welcome. You're welcome. For those of us who may not have been such as myself, you know, Elvis. I guess I must have been about five or six when Elvis passed. Uh, you know, I I didn't remember the spotlight that was on um, the family, and uh, I'm I'm just wondering. You know, I know in LA, obviously, it's been probably people have been talking about it, but what a famous family they were. Yes, you know they. Um... They, I mean, there are a lot of celebrities, but yes, this family, Elvis, was uh, very unique and um, very much appreciated. And, you know, one of the, of course, it's terribly sad that she died. She was only 54. Um, And one of the, one of the sweet things, though, about it is that it was right after the Golden Globes and right Mm -hmm. after the actor who played Elvis in the movie, um, when he got his, when he won for Best Actor, um, gave an emotional thank you to um, to Lisa Marie and Priscilla, and I said how much he loves them, and you know, thanks. He was thanking them for sharing all of these memories and so on, and so that was a really wonderful, um, you know, a wonderful sort of closing the circle in a way. You know, that here he was um, representing Elvis in a way and saying he yeah. loved her. I know you've talked about this in the past, but um, what it must it be like to be born into such fame? You know, you, you just want a normal childhood. She was describing what it was like to live at Graceland earlier. You know, I, I gather her childhood was, was anything but normal early on, at least. Well, yes. You know, even if she hadn't been um, born to this famous family, I mean, as you were mentioning, four years old, her parents got divorced, Elvis uh, and her mother got divorced. Then nine years old, she saw her father dead at uh, Graceland. And then between 12 and 15, her mother's boyfriend reportedly sexually abused her. So here she is by 15 years old, <laughs> you know, the, one trauma after another. 
Um, and then add on top of it that this isn't just sort of a normal family with these traumas, uh, but, you know, a, a family in the spotlight. Yeah. Now that you mention it, when you think of the of that sequence of events for her, I mean, any child would have struggled with that. Uh, and yet over the years, it was it was, um, I guess, carrying the Presley name. I was thinking some of, the, of some of the other kids who carry those huge names. You know, there are some who are the child, children of famous people. There are others who are the children of very famous people. I think of, you know, Bobby, Bobby, uh, Christina Brown, for instance, uh, Whitney Houston, Bobby Brown's daughter. The pressure must be intense. The pressure must be intense to try to carve your own path, especially when they die young, when the famous person has died young. Yes. I mean, um, a lot of children of celebrities uh, want try to become, you know, they want to sort of do the same thing, uh, bring pride to their family, you know, show that, I mean, Lisa Marie was really a lost child from early on, you know, from these original traumas. And she, as you were saying, yes, she did made, make some albums and it, she did have a modicum of success. She was never, of course, as successful as her father. And I think, um, you know, I think she was disappointed by that. She married Michael Jackson. I think that that was also uh, her attempt to, to become, to sort of merge the two famous um, singers, you know, the two Kings. Right. Um, And, uh, and then that didn't work out. So I, she, she almost seems like a, and then of course you have to add to this whole mix early on her mother and she got involved with Scientology and whether you're a, a child of a celebrity or not, you know, Scientology really messes with your mind. And so that added to um, what she was going through, really made everything worse. She kind of seen her life, um, you know, she says she's, she underwent um, many, many tragedies. And, of course, the one that she was talking about uh, most recently was her son's suicide, how she mm-hmm. she wrote an article about how the grief doesn't really leave, you know, it just stays around that she's every day she um, she felt guilty about her son killing himself and she just missed him and all of that. So she all in all, um, it really seemed like she was in a uh, like like one of those arcade games, you know, where you're sort of pinging from one um, stop to the other. And I mean, she did a wonderful job considering all of these traumas that she was dealing with. And it's really very sad. You know, one of the things that bothers me is that at the uh, Golden Globes, um, and it's all, I've seen the video, I'm sure you probably have too, there is certainly being talked about how um, she was unsteady on her feet. She was being interviewed on the red carpet and she had to hold on to a man she was with and she slurred her, her words at times. And clearly, you know, so, if someone would have um, noticed that, that she was, and she looked really bad, she looked really, uh, her eyes were sunken in, she, she looked sick, you know, and, and yet nobody really made the effort to, um, to get her to a doctor. If she had gotten to a doctor sooner, she might well have been saved. They might have figured out what was wrong. It was mind-blowing, truly mind-blowing. I really didn't know what, it, what to do with myself after, after I saw it. Yeah. I, I had to take like five days to process it mm-hmm. because it was so incredible and so spot-on and so authentic that, yeah, I, I can't even describe what it meant.
That was Lisa Marie Presley at the Golden Globes earlier this week, describing her reaction to seeing the Baz Luhrmann film, uh, the biopic about her father, Elvis. Um, Austin Butler won Best Actor for his portrayal in a drama, for his portrayal of uh, the rock and roll king in that one. Uh, Carol Lieberman is my guest this half hour. She is a clinical and forensic psychiatrist based in Beverly Hills. We're talking about uh, Lisa Marie's life, but also the pressure of being the child of a superstar, being the child of some of those rare uh, celebrity gods, so to speak. And Elvis was certainly one of them. Um, I mean, Carol, you're, you're in Beverly Hills. You're right in the midst of it all. Have we gotten any better at trying to take some of that pressure off the children of superstars. I feel like, I feel like Lisa Marie spent her whole life in the tabloid. Some of it was, was her doing, obviously. But this was a child whose whose private life was was very was not often respected. No, I, we have not gotten any better. Not that I have seen. I mean, needless to say, being a psychiatrist in Beverly Hills, I have a number of patients who are celebrities or children of celebrities. And um you know, I mean, the world thinks that they have these charmed lives, and in some ways, of course, they do, you know, like getting a lot of attention and, and having money and, you know, a luxurious lifestyle and so on. But um, but for the children, um, it isn't really – I mean, and fame, <laughs> there are limits to how – I mean, when you, when you come to Hollywood or when you, uh, you want to become famous, of course, that seems like the uh, – the the thing that you're striving for it's it's you you you're just looking forward to that day and then when you get to that day you know when when the tabloids are following you and all of that um then fame doesn't seem quite as desirable but um the problem with that children have of celebrities is that first of all if it's a celebrity like an actor um it could be any celebrity too but especially you know celebrities want people who want fame um, they are trying to fill an emptiness inside of them. They are. Uh, they grew up with um, in an environment where they didn't get enough love and attention, and so that is the drive behind the people becoming celebrities. Um, and so those are the parents, you know. So then, when you have children uh, of people like that, um, the who are <laughs> I guess who are, who are you know a, a lot most of them, many of them, narcissistic, it's, this, it's repeating the same pattern of not getting enough love and attention um, for the children. You know, the children having an emptiness inside, which is why a lot of them turn to alcohol and drugs, uh, to fill that emptiness. And so and a lot of time, most of the time, because of the parents' work schedule, they have housekeepers and maids and, and um, drivers taking care of their kids. And so um, a lot of times the kids don't really get to have as much time with their parents as like an average kid would have. Yeah. I mean, even Priscilla, uh, Priscilla uh, Lisa Marie earlier describing as a child that, you know, her father would sleep all day when she was at Graceland and she'd have yeah. the run of the house, right? That was the sort of the <laughs> typical, I mean, this was the, this was the 70s. I remember I grew up in the same time. So things were a bit more free back then. I guess also for, for some, for even for Lisa Marie, I mean, she had a very hard time. She was a pretty decent musician, but she could never get out from underneath the shadow of her father. And a lot of, I think a mm-hmm. lot of the kids of super feel the same way. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, I mean, she did get, you know, they did do moderately well, and she did get some really good reviews and so on, but she didn't, um, of course, she couldn't become, she didn't become 
uh, as famous as her father. And that's another thing. Like some, some of the children of celebrities want to follow in their parents' footsteps and either try to do better than their parents or at least as well as their parents. Or, but some of them want to do the exact opposite. Um, they because they either they feel that they can't compete, you know, that they're not as good as their parent in whatever, either as an actor, or a musician, or whatever, um, and so and some of them just want to rebel, you know, so they don't want to uh, be in that same field. But many just get lost, you know, um, tr- trying to trying to find their own way when they're overshadowed by such a famous parent. Yeah, caught somewhere in the middle. Carol Lieberman, it's been fascinating. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Have a lovely weekend. Thank you. You too. The immigration minister was doing the media rounds today um, to address concerns about the federal government's plans announced in November to welcome half a million new immigrants to this country per year by 2025. The reason why I think a lot of Canadians are fully supportive of immigration, uh, but some policymakers out there are concerned about the potential impacts of that many people on health care, housing, the labor market. Will there be enough jobs? Will there be enough homes? Our health care system is already in trouble. Are we sure that we're prepared for this? Right. I think that's the general tone of it. Um, Sean Fraser, the immigration minister, says increasing immigration will help us address labor shortages as well as demographic changes. The reality is if we don't continue to increase our immigration ambition and bring more working age population and young families into this country, our questions uh, will not be about labor shortages a generation from now. They're going to be about whether we can afford schools and hospitals. So that is one debate that's been going on about immigration of late. Another one is Ottawa facing pressure to do something to curb the tide of asylum seekers crossing into Canada on foot on something called Roxham Road, which is on the Quebec-New York state border. It's a five-kilometer stretch of rural road that you can actually walk along. Um, Part of the issue suddenly now is a tragedy there. A 44-year-old Haitian national, a man, froze to death after being caught in a snowstorm and getting lost while trying to make the crossing there in that area last month. It comes as more than 34,000 people crossed at that same crossing between January 1st and November 30th of last year. The majority of them crossing uh, official ports or outside official ports of entry are doing it there. They fly to New York, uh, take a bus to Plattsburgh or Burlington, get a cab and cross. Why do they do it? Um, There are many reasons. But under the 2004 Safe Third Country Agreement, Refugee claimants who enter Canada outside an official port of entry, so not an, not an official border, must be processed in Canada and cannot be immediately returned to the U.S. Claimants who come through official entry points of entry, a border, for instance, or official points of entry, are sent back to the U.S., which is, of course, what many are trying to avoid. Now, over time, Quebec's Premier, Francois Legault, has been asking Ottawa to close that crossing. In other words, to try to stem the tide of these irregular border crossings. Now, federal conservative leader Pierre Polyev is also calling for the same, saying he can understand the desperation that leads migrants to cross into Canada through unofficial points of entry, but he'd like to see it stop. That is a reality. It is not legal to cross at that point. And we need to fix the system so that people come here through the normal points of entry. And that, that, that is two, a two-step process. Renegotiate the deal with the Americans, and speed up the processing of immigration generally. 
course, the backlogs there are astronomical these days. But what would closing uh, that crossing specifically, but what would cracking down on irregular crossings broadly accomplish? Would it work? Could it work? Joining me now is Chantal Deloge. She is a senior partner with the Deloge Law Group in Toronto and a lawyer who specializes in immigration and refugee law. Thank you for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. When you see reports of someone having died trying to make that Roxham Road crossing, which is a pretty straightforward crossing if you follow the road, what does it say to you? Because it, it can be a divisive issue, can it? Yeah, definitely can. Um, it, what it evokes for me is that the Western world has made it so difficult for asylum seekers to get to safety that the system basically drives people into taking desperate measures. And that includes sometimes, you know, walking across a farmer's field in Manitoba in the middle of the winter without a proper jacket. And sometimes, as in this case, you know, trying to cross in Quebec as well. A, a lot of people in public, I think, they get a very stilted view about refugees. They wonder why people resort to this as if they had any other choice. I mean, if people had a normal means of seeking safety in a Western country without risking their life this way, they would definitely do it. And yet it also always evokes that, um, as you put it, always brings up that question of waiting your turn, so to speak, because there are lots of people who like to come in versus jumping the line. And I would imagine you probably think that's probably a bit of a false, a false dichotomy. It's definitely a false dichotomy because in order to come to Canada as a refugee, if you don't enter the country by the means that some of these people are, are resorting to, you have to actually uh, usually be sponsored by a private organization in Canada or you have to come through the UNHCR. Both of those means of coming to Canada take years and years of waiting. And if we look at the private sponsorship category, you actually have to have an organization in Canada that's willing to sign a sponsorship for you. And most people don't have access to those kinds of resources. So assuming that neither one of those options works for you, there is no other way to come here as a refugee. Uh, it becomes impossible. So the barriers that we've set up, they force people into this situation. Tell me a bit about the safe third party, the safe third country agreement, because I, I understand that it can be misconstrued sometimes, but under most people's understanding is that if you land in the U.S., you're supposed to file a refugee application from the U.S. since it is a, a safe third country. Yeah, so the way that agreement actually works is that if a person lands in either Canada or the U.S., the presumption is that they should make their claim in the country where they first arrive, and they shouldn't go to the other countries seeking to what people call asylum shopping, you know, just because you like the other place better. There are exceptions to that rule. One of the main exceptions is that if you're already boots on the ground in Canada, you bypass the safe third country agreement. So if, if you show up at a port of entry and report yourself to a CBSA officer, you would be turned back. Whereas if you manage to get into Canada and already have your feet on the soil inside Canada, you get around that rule. It, it sounds like on its face, if you don't know a lot about the actual conditions for refugees, you would think that the rule makes sense, right? The first place where you arrive, that's where you should make your claim. But the problem is the U.S. is really really problematic when it comes to how they handle asylum cases. Their approval rates are drastically lower than they are in Canada, for no appreciable reason, by the way, because we're applying the same international laws. So how, how do you really account for that 
variation in the, in the acceptance rate. The other thing is the U.S. uses a lot of detention mechanisms on refugees. You know, someone just seeking to innocently look for safety in a country, all of a sudden they get thrown into jail in the U.S., which is something that Canada doesn't do. So there are many, many reasons why people would want to come to Canada and prefer it over the U.S., not the least of which is the chance of being accepted here is that much greater. Yeah, I, I suppose if you flip that on its on its head, though, you might say that Canada's rules are too lax and therefore we get, you know, 40,000 plus people walking across that border alone at Roxham or 35,000 last year. Um, it seems like a lot of people and you wonder how do you fix that before the perception of it becomes the problem as opposed to the reality as you're painting out very aptly. Yeah. So, well, first of all, I would challenge the statement that that's a lot of people. Uh, If you look at the mass movement of refugees all over the world, Canada receives such a tiny, tiny fraction of the overall number, primarily because of our geographic isolation. It's virtually impossible for people to actually make it here. Uh, So the ones that do make it here are just a little drop in the bucket compared to what other countries are hosting. Like if you look at places like Turkey, Right, um, Lebanon, yeah. Pakistan, yeah, and, and even some European countries as well. Like, you know, if we look at Turkey, for example, we're talking about millions of refugees. Uh, Lebanon has a population of 4 million people. And uh, during the Iraqi and Syrian conflicts, they were hosting about a million refugees. That's like 25% of their population. So, I mean, we really have it pretty easy here in Canada when it comes to overall numbers. But if we want to talk about fixing a problem, I mean, if one considers that crossing the, you know, the, the border and making a refugee claim in Canada is a problem, then what our government needs to do is create a safe pathway for people to make their claims in Canada legitimately without forcing them to make those dangerous border crossings or what some people call an illegal border crossing as if they had any choice. So, you know, if the Canadian government would come out with a refugee program that would allow people to apply, would process them in a reasonable period of time and not throw up impossible barriers, that would fix the problem overnight. In your experience, do the majority of those trying to make that crossing come here because they have family to meet? I mean, do they already have support systems in Canada that they're coming to join? That was certainly the case of the, of the gentleman who, who tragically died before Christmas. He was coming to Canada to meet his family. Yeah, most people, that's the case. So when I see people that come through the U.S. to Canada preferring to make their claim here, it's usually for a number of fairly predictable reasons, one of them being that they have family here. If someone has immediate family members in Canada, they can actually bypass the safe third country agreement. They don't have to cross at Roxham Road. They could actually come to a regular port of entry and get an appointment and make a claim in in the regular way. So family is a big part of it. You also have the fact that, you know, Canada has French as a second language. So there are many people like Haiti, Haiti included, many people from various countries, you know, because French is their primary language, they obviously have some impetus to, you know, they would feel more comfortable in Canada and be able to settle here more quickly. You also have um, certain situations where the U.S. either doesn't recognize that type of claim or has a very low acceptance rate for that type of claim. For example, domestic violence, 
you know, women uh, fleeing domestic violence, uh, their their chances to be accepted in Canada are much better. Certain people from the LGBT community as well uh, feel more comfortable making their uh, claim in Canada because the culture is a little bit more liberal here in that respect. Shanta Deloge is with us this half hour. She is a lawyer specializing in immigration and refugee law. We're talking about irregular crossings into Canada, uh, people uh, crossing over from the U.S. to claim refugee status here. We've seen it go the other way as well, uh, with often, again, uh, these can be very dangerous crossings. We saw a death before Christmas at the near the Roxham Road crossing in Quebec. Of course, there was that uh, well-publicized tragedy uh, last year in Manitoba with an Indian family crossing the other way into the U.S. from Canada, but it highlighted the dangers sometimes of these crossings. Uh, Chantal, this week, Pierre Poliev uh, announced that he, if elected, would close the Roxham Road crossing and try to streamline uh, this in a different way. What kind of impact might that have? Well, that's just going to force people into even more dangerous predicaments. It, it is not going to solve the problem because when somebody is running for their life and trying to seek safety from persecution, they are going to find a way to do it regardless of the barriers that you put up. So you close Roxham Road, which you, I mean, look at how long the land border is between Canada and the U.S. and how many miles of unmanned border there is between our two countries. You close Roxham Road, you're just it's just going to mean people are going to cross in Manitoba. People are going to cross like wherever they can find a spot, they're going to use that. At least with Roxham Road, there is a safe path, which is recognizable. And when they get to the other side, they can make a claim in safety. You cross in the middle of the winter in Manitoba, you don't have that kind of facility. So you are going to see more deaths. You're going to see more people taking risks. And in fact, it doesn't do anything good for the security of Canada to, to do something like that, because at least now when they reach the other side of the border, they report themselves to border services. They have a security check. They do their fingerprints. You wander across the border in the middle of the night in Manitoba. Nobody is checking you. Nobody even knows that you're here. So how does that help our security? It really doesn't. Again, we go back to the perception of this, because I, I, I get the sense it's going to become an issue we're going to talk about uh, coming up, because we've already seen it being talked about with the leader, of, you know, that when we get to the next election, one presumes it'll be a battle, come down to a battle between the Liberals and the Conservatives. And they seem to have defined two very different stances on this idea of, of irregular border crossings. How do we continue to have a rational conversation about this? Because I think you're right. I think Canada still wants to be compassionate. Uh, I think we understand that other countries around the world are taking in huge numbers of migrants because of, you know, the variety of crises going on in the world. But we want to sort of find that balance between making sure that people are comfortable with with this whole notion of, of jumping the queue, so to speak, but also show compassion and at the same time, make sure that the country is secure. So is Roxham Road the answer? First of all, the, when we talk about jumping the queue, there is no queue. Uh, when it comes to refugees, there there's no such thing as jumping the queue because there isn't one. You either come here and you make your claim or else you're stuck in a foreign country for God only knows how long waiting for the UNHCR to eventually process you to go God knows where. I, I think the, the issue of having a rational discourse around this is that a lot of people they don't have the relevant information or the knowledge to understand the reality of how these programs work. If more people would educate themselves about the choices or lack thereof that are actually available to asylum seekers, I think they would be a lot more sympathetic. My view is that the, the safe third country agreement should simply be trashed. The government should simply cancel it and 
then the Roxham Road issue disappears, right? Uh, before the Safe Third Country Agreement, people could just come to the Canadian border, say, I'd like to make a refugee claim, and then you'd process them in a normal manner. The Only the Safe Third Country is forcing people to make these irregular border crossings. So if we got rid of it, that would really be a much simpler solution, which would be much more humane. I guess part of the issue here is that, you know, we do a lot of a lot of stories about, you know, Afghan interpreters who are trapped in Pakistan, can't make it here, so can't apply to get in. I mean, that's a separate stream, I know, but it feels like there are so many migrants out there, so many people would like to come to this country, that your ability to get to that crossing in Champlain, New York, seems like an unfortunate way to sort through those who should be able to come into this country and make a refugee claim that is and, and then be here while it's processed. Yeah, it, it's really a terrible situation. I mean, I, on one hand, I, I sympathize with the people who say that, you know, with the millions of refugees all over the world, I mean, Canada can only do so much. But the, the fact is that we take a very, very small number of the overall global intake of refugees. Uh, we certainly pull more than our weight, by the way. Um, I don't mean to say that Canada is shirking its responsibility. We do a lot more than other countries that have a way bigger population. Like per capita, we do pretty well. But, you you know, we don't provide a pathway for those people to come here. The, the number of people that actually arrive on our shores is so infinitesimally small uh, that I think we're just making a mountain out of a molehill. And, you know, if, if we would do more to facilitate people being able to find peaceful resolutions in their own country overseas, and if we would accept more refugees through the overseas refugee sponsorship system, it would certainly decrease the demand of people having to try to make it here on their own. Well, Chantal Delage, thank you so much for uh, for your insight on this. I appreciate it. Thank you so much.